Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Well, there's a lot. And so we could, we could kind of divide these consequences into different categories. Yeah. Uh, but let's start with the most serious. Uh, and the most serious is let's actually talk about uh, physical health and well-being. Right, like, uh, uh, and here there is just some really scary results, right? Especially if you look at uh, young women in Generation Z, so the first generation to actually have access to smartphones and social media, starting in their preteen and early teenage years. Uh, so you and I were millennials. We went to college. We did, when we arrived at college, we didn't have these. We didn't have these as teenagers. If you look at the statistics, there's there's nothing all that alarming about, let's say, uh, self harm or mental health statistics for our generation. There hasn't been much change, uh, that much change recently. But if you look at Generation Z, and in particular, uh, look at young women in Generation Z, what you see is a massive spike. It's one of the scariest graphs I've seen. When you look uh, first at, let's say, anxiety and anxiety related disorders. And second, when you look at actual sort of hospitalizations uh, for self-harm, which is which is really the the ground truth uh, if there's a mental health crisis going on. Because sure, there could be differences in reporting as cultural norms change. But the thing that's the ground truth is how many people are being hospitalized, let's say, for, for uh, extreme depression, suicide attempts, or self-harm. And that just skyrocketed. And, and, and there's really no other way, no other explanation that fits the timing than social media and smartphones. So if we want to start with the the biggest consequences, if you put these things in the hands of young people whose brains are still developing, who are still going through uh, you know these hard middle school and high school periods, it's causing this. We're talking physical harm, uh, unprecedented levels of increase in these types of uh, self harm and mental illness, and this is a really big deal. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Cal, welcome back to The Unmistakable Creative. I'm happy to be back. I always enjoy talking with you. But yeah, I always enjoy talking with you as well. Always learn so much from you. Uh, you have a new book out called Digital Minimalism, which we are going to talk about in a lot of detail. But before we do that, you know that I like to start with weird and very unusual questions. And I thought I'd ask you a question that I don't think I've asked you before or many other people before. And that is, what is one of the most important things that one or both of your parents uh, taught you while you're growing up? And how has that impacted the choices that you've made with your life? Well, we certainly had a, a family culture uh, that I think rewarded, I don't want you to call it character. I don't know if that's the right word. That, you know, uh, doing the right thing is important um, regardless, right? So, you know, you're a kid, you're at the restaurant, the, the, the waiter brings back the check and they've, they've left something significant off. It's significantly cheaper than it should be. You call back the waiter and say, this is wrong. I owe you more money. You know, that type of little thing. Uh, 
over time can really build up a sense that, okay, what's important is sort of what you do even when you don't have to. So I think, I think that, that has been sort of a key backdrop to sort of the, the way I see building a values-driven life. Mm-hmm. I mean, how has that shaped you, uh, you know, even as you were a student, as an author, as, as well as an educator, like in the way that you teach people? Well, I think one implication of this type of thinking is that um, uh, sort of convenience and comfort, uh, gratification in the moment, these are not the metrics. These aren't the metrics that you're trying to optimize, right? That the, the metrics you're trying to optimize is uh, doing doing things of value, doing the right things to things that are important, sort of abstractly speaking, uh, which I think has a lot of really important implications. I mean, it, it helps support a work ethic. Uh, it helps support resilience. Um, it, it helps support sort of focus on important things over trivial things. Uh, so, so just this one idea can actually lead to uh, quite a bit of, of good implications in how you lead your life. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the whole idea of metrics that you're trying to optimize, because it's something that I've thought a lot about, uh, particularly because I had a, a book launch recently. Uh, and as part of getting ready for this interview, believe it or not, I haven't been on social media since I read your book. Like I basically said, OK, let me take you know 30 days off to see what will happen. But one of the things that really has made me think about is the way that we measure our lives, our lives these days, like we quantify everything, you know, we, our work and our worth are so coupled. Uh, and I can't help but wonder what are the implications uh, for our well-being uh, with the ways that with the ways that we choose to measure our lives. Like I know that David Brooks talks about this distinction between eulogy values and resume values, and yet we live in a world where you have an opportunity to constantly showcase your resume values. Right. Well, metrics are are a double-edged sword. I mean, so when you look at very high performers, let's say elite performers in very specific fields. Mm-hmm. Um, almost certainly, they're using some sort of quantitative-based metrics to help guide the type of incredibly focused work that's required. Let's say, you know, build a superstar-level skill. The problem is, and I think you're putting your finger on this, is that there's more and more things in our culture that's bringing this type of quantification into areas where it, it's really causing more harm than good. I mean, one way to think a lot about social media is that it's sort of a an artificial quantification of your social life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea that you have numbers, you know, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, not just friend counts, but retweets and likes and to, how much do people appreciate this? And I can, and I can see the numbers that my friends have, like, you know, a baseball player looking at the back of the baseball card of their teammates. I think when you, when you take this type, the power of quantification at pursuing metric improvement, and you take it out of a small number of really rarefied instances where you know I'm a professional chess player and I'm trying to uh, improve my ranking because that's what my whole career is about. When you take it out of these sort of rarefied instances, uh, I think it really can drive a lot of uh, maladaptive behavior. So I think it's a good point that you're putting your figure on there. Yeah. Well, I mean, as somebody who is an author uh, and somebody who is a blogger who has a, a pretty popular blog and has sold books and has been successful with your books. How do you think about measuring your professional accomplishments and how do you measure uh, the value of those things? Because I think that I think one of the the most difficult things for me with audience of one was when the numbers weren't living up to my expectations. And I remember my sister saying, well, isn't that the entire message of the book? Uh, And so I, I wonder how you think about those things. Um, it's a hard question, right? Because if you're writing books, I guess you, the clear metric that, uh, the publisher is going to have is book sales, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a number um, and it's a powerful number because uh, it determines what happens, let's say, with your next book uh, more than anything else. 
And, yeah. In fact, you know, publishers have business models they build and they, and they, they actually put these numbers in there. Um, and, and that is important, but it's also a lag measure, right? In the sense that it's, it's a measure that uh, there's not an effort that you can do, let's say today, that's going to directly improve that metric. It's, uh-huh. it's a metric that lags lots of other types of activities and often in an indirect way. And so the, the problem with, with lag metrics is that uh, you can't directly affect them. And so if you obsess about them, it can lead you, uh, it can lead you down uh, ineffective paths or into, in the uh, cul-de-sacs of productivity. So, you know, what I try to do is if there's going to be measures I care about, uh, I would rather them be lead measures, which mm-hmm. are metrics that, you know, I can, it's process oriented. I can directly improve this metric by doing X this week. And I, I want to say these are terms I'm, I'm borrowing from a book called uh, The Four Disciplines of Execution. Yeah. Um, also read because I remember when you referenced it in Deep Work, I immediately ordered the book and, and got that as well. Yeah, exactly. So this is these are ideas that actually came out of how the Stephen Covey's consulting group um, has very successfully helped teams within companies uh, better execute on goals, and and so it's a, a really validated methodology and something that I, I think is very um, useful. Um, but it's also as I wrote in Deep Work is hey, this idea from business methodology uh, can be pretty relevant to your personal life as well, and and that's where it is, right? So if you're focusing on lead measures, like uh, I want to spend. Uh, and you see this in your book as well, of course, you know, I want to, I want to spend this many hours this week producing really valuable things, uh, or this many hours exposing myself to really interesting ideas and grappling with them, right? These are things you can control. You can directly increase how well you did on that metric. And so finding the right lead metrics that you're, you're pretty convinced are going to indirectly eventually help the lag metrics is, is the way I like to think about things. Otherwise, otherwise, not only did you go crazy, uh, but you end up really, you could, you start following down paths that like you, you're so desperate to move the lag measure. You find yourself, you know, in some sort of, uh, weird area, doing some sort of weird behavior that's far away from the things you care about. That's, that's not really helping you create things that are valuable. And you're wondering, how did I get here? That's how people end up is I think when your focus shifts from lead to lag measures. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things I want to ask you about, because uh, you're here for a second time and you're here two years later, is obviously uh, the state of our, our education system. I mean, you've been in it for two years. Uh, I wonder what's changed. What have you noticed in your students? Uh, what are the things that you would tell parents who are listening about this? And, and you know, what are the things that we need to consider that are important here? Yeah, I know we talk about this usually when <laughs> every time we talk, uh, we check in, right? The future of yeah. education, because it seems like this has to be poised, right? It has to be poised on the, the brink of disruption, because from the, the technological perspective, everything is here. And what I find interesting is, let's say between when we last talked and now, not a lot, at least from my view, not a lot has changed yet. And actually, I think this stasis is, is in itself interesting, right? Why, why have we not seen this sudden disruptive shift towards maybe a more decentralized or bespoke model uh, of higher education. Now, there, there could just be there's some uh, systemic obstacles still that haven't been cleared, right? We're not quite at the tipping point where that's ready to happen yet. And when it does happen, uh, it's going to come fast. Uh, so that could still be out there. Uh, but another thing I've noticing the more time I spend in the classroom is that if you look at pedagogy, there there really is one technology that has persisted for uh, well over 500 years now, which is, you know, someone in a room with other people talking to them about ideas. And it's something about that. I think that's persisted because there's something there, right? This is, this is a mode of education uh, that has weathered many other technological disruptions, probably the biggest of which being the book, 
And, and I, th- I think we forget how disruptive the codex must have been to the to the then somewhat fledgling notion of sort of university style education. This idea that you could have uh, information captured by experts, very accessible index, you could move very quickly from one idea to another with citations, so you could reference these other books. I mean, you would think, what's the point? of ever, ever gathering in like Bologna, where the early university was, for example, or in London, uh, what's the point of gathering when you could just get access to these books, but it persisted. And then it persisted through the advent of, you know, radio and the advent of television, all these things which are supposed to be disruptive. And so now I'm in this interesting area where I say, I'm throwing my hands up. Uh, it's really interesting to watch what's happening with higher education disruption. Uh, but I don't know where it's going. And I think the fact that there's this persistence of some of these old forms, I'm now starting to believe that, okay, maybe we overlooked something. Uh, you know, we, we, there's these ed tech people like to show these slides where they show like a classroom from 1950 and they're like, nothing has changed between then and now. Isn't that real problematic? But like, well, nothing's changed between basically the year 500 and now when it comes to this type of teaching. And maybe instead of being a problem, that's saying there's something fundamental about mm-hmm. analog and person human interaction that works really well. Yeah. You know, it, it's uh, it's interesting. We're teaching an online writer's workshop. And one of the things that we decided to do was flip the whole model on its head and give people the lectures ahead of time and come to the class to discuss. And even in a, a digital setting, you know, when we did this the last time, we found that the most valuable thing was the actual peer-to-peer interaction, not me teaching, uh, you know, and them passively consuming. Yeah, this isn't surprising. Uh, I mean, something I learned a lot about when I was researching my new book was the degree to which so much of our brain is actually dedicated to social processing. I mean, how much of it is dedicated to helping to sort of understand and extract nuance from interaction with other human beings that you're there in person with. Um, We are really social beings and we're very good at being around other people and interacting with them, because I guess this was, of course, key to our survival. And so, I mean, I'm wondering if this has something to do with the fact that you find that, hey, when people get together in person, be it to, to learn the material directly or to discuss the material, lots of good things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, let's actually shift gears and get into the, the meat of why you're actually here, which is to talk about uh, this new idea, digital minimalism. Uh, what, what really planted the seed for this? Because you know, from having read both of your books or, or all three of your books, you know, I got the sense that deep work was really about the role that distraction and social media and these technologies play in our professional lives. But digital minimalism is a way of taking that same approach to our personal lives. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, after I published Deep Work in 2016, this was one of the big pieces of feedback I started getting from readers, which was, okay, maybe I buy this premise that, you know, technology is having these unexpected impacts on our professional life, but what about our personal life? And the sense I was getting is that there had been a shift. You know, at some point in the last, let's say, two years, people began the shift from making self-deprecating jokes about how much they look at their phone to actually feeling really concerned, you know, actually starting to feel, hey, this is taking me away from things that are more valuable. Uh, I'm using this more than is useful. I'm using this more than is healthy, that there's actual uh, real impacts on the quality of my life at play here. And so there was this, this clamor from, from my readers that this is just as important. And that's what sent me down uh, the path that led eventually to this book. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you briefly about uh, deep work uh, only because, you know, I taught a a workshop at uh, a major corporation recently. And one of the things that was really shocking, and this was for a major marketing team at 
a Fortune 500 corporation who anybody listening will know who the company is. And I was with the global CMO and her team. And I mean, these are people who get paid pretty damn well. And I remember talking to them about email and the fact that they were spending upwards of four to five hours a day on email. And you know, I said, let's just do the math really quick, make it really simple. Let's assume that you all get paid $100,000 a year. We probably get paid more. And when you did the math, I was, I, you know, it came down to, wait a minute, you're paying your employees $300 a day to check and respond to email. Yep. Well, I think this is a side that the system is broken, right? Yeah. I mean, I, this is a topic I, I've thought a lot about. I wrote about a deep work. I'm actually writing a book right now, uh, tentatively titled A World Without Email. So mm. I've really got deep uh, into this topic and I'm, I'm completely convinced it's just the system is broken. We have, uh, we, we built a workflow. When I say built, I mean, we sort of haphazardly allowed this thing to emerge without much human intention behind it. And so we've, we better, maybe we should say stumbled backwards into this approach to knowledge work, which is built on maintaining this ongoing unstructured conversation that occurs through either email messages or Slack instant messages or some combination of the two. And what we're essentially trying to do is take the sort of instinctual way that you would organize, let's say, a tribe of three or four people, which is you would just have an ongoing unstructured conversation. We're trying to scale it up to very large organizations. Uh, and it quite simply doesn't work. Uh, not only does that type of communication not scale after you get past, let's say, three or four people, um, it, it's a fundamental mismatch with the way our brains operate. So if you're trying to create value with your brain, one of the worst things you could do, we know this from psychology research, is context switch all the time. But if you want to maintain a unstructured, ongoing conversation with dozens, if not hundreds of people, you have to constantly tend the conversation, which means you have to keep context switching. Uh, and not to go on a rant about this, but when, when I talk to, let's say, C-suite types, uh, they keep thinking like, oh, we're almost there. We just have to tweak our norms. They always use this word. Like, well, you, you know, this the way we're using email is great. Uh, it's, it's really powerful. Our only issue is our norms are a little off. And if we could only agree that, you know, uh, we're not going to respond right away, or maybe like we don't send emails at night, then we'll finally have the right formula will be in this productivity nirvana. And I think they're they're deluding themselves that this we're not just a couple norm fixes away from having this productivity nirvana. The entire fundamental way of working where let's keep an ongoing unstructured conversation as our primary way of coordinating is this fundamental way of working that is, is just untenable. And it's going to require significant effort to change this. It's not just a few habit tweaks away. Mm -hmm. So how much is this costing people uh, and organizations in terms of lost productivity and, and well-being? And you know, given this, does the eight-hour workday that we're used to working make any sense at all? Well, very few of the people, let's say, you were talking to at that workshop are doing an eight-hour workday because uh, this is so inefficient for our brains that they're doing off-the-book second shifts as well uh, in the evening after the kids go to bed, in the morning before they go to work, on the weekends, and most of this is off the books. Um, and even without that off-the-books uh, work, the non-industrial sector productivity metrics or the economy-wide metrics on sort of how much value is being produced per worker have stagnated throughout the whole period in which we invested unprecedented amounts of money into making professional communication as uh, efficient and flexible as possible. So even if we look at the hard numbers, uh, we could see this is having a, a, an impact on the economic scale. You know, mm -hmm. Our knowledge sector is not getting more productive. This technology is actually not making us more productive. And I think if you factored in the off-the-books work, we would probably see uh, a decrease uh, in economy-wide productivity. Uh, so to me, I think the right analogy is the way that we're running knowledge work now 
is the way that they used to build cars before the assembly line, which is, you know, they would have different teams gather in a fixed spot in the factory floor and each team would build a car in place. This was very instinctual. It was just trying to scale up the way that you would build something with a a small group of people back in our Paleolithic history. Uh, It was easy to manage. Everyone understood it. But it was a, a terribly inefficient way to produce cars. And so the assembly line came along and it was a huge pain. It's very hard to manage. It has a lot of hard edges. Bad things happen. If you don't calibrate it just right, you know, you're going to have things coming too fast off of this segment and they will be ready for it at the other segment. You have to spend more money. You need more managers. But none of that mattered because it produced cars 10 to 100 times faster. And so I think that's where we are in knowledge work. We have this very simple, instinctual way of working that we're trying to scale up. It's costing us a fortune in lost productivity. We're producing proverbial cars way too slow. And we have to make the shift to the proverbial assembly line, by which I mean uh, much more thoughtful and well thought through approaches to work that really take into account how the, in our case, how the human brain functions. And when we do, we're going to have uh, a breakout or breakthrough in not industrial productivity, but it's, it's going to take a hard transition to get there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's funny because I remember I got pushback on some of these suggestions and I, I thought it was just to me, you know, I walked into this environment and talked about, you know, your email should be closed by default and, and you know, you need 90 minutes to get into flow and all of this. And it just was shocking to me that, wait a minute, you guys are more successful than I am. You're, you know, further along in your careers. Uh, how is this news to any of you? Well, I think the thing is, and this is what's important is, uh, the reason why advice, the type of standard advice you and I might give, like, hey, your email should be shut, you need to, you need to do more deep work, and, uh, and why this gets pushed back, uh, is because what we're, what we're not taking into account is that the underlying way in which the work, let's say, at that company is organized depends on this ongoing unstructured conversation, right? They've built their work. I call this the hyperactive hive mind workflow. Uh, this is how they structure and coordinate their work. They, maybe they did designed this explicitly, but this is how most knowledge work for firms work. And the problem is, is when you step away from this, so you say, okay, I'm stepping out of this ongoing unstructured conversation so that I can actually produce better things with my mind. It actually often has a negative consequence. And this is probably what the the executives at this workshop were picking up is that as long as your work is built on, we have to have this ongoing conversation. When people step away, it creates friction. It's a problem because there's no alternative for how things get organized or how things move forward. And so I've, I've uh, increasingly come to believe, you know, these type of habit fix and norm shifts are not going to be enough on their own. The company as a whole has to essentially put in place an alternative for just, we all have an address, let's just rock and roll. There yeah. has to be a more structured way to, to organize who's doing what, what's on whose plate, what progress are they making, who needs what from who. Uh, there needs to be a more structured way to do this. And until there is... Like a lot of the type of advice you and I give, it's going to create pushback because they're probably accurately noted. Actually, work at our company depends on us participating in this sort of ongoing hyperactive high mind conversation. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. You know, another one of the people there brought up the fact that the open office had been incredibly disruptive to the workflow there. And I know that you have actually proposed a very different idea for an open office with this hub and spoke model. And the funny thing is people are spending like hundreds of millions of dollars designing these breathtaking, beautiful open offices. Are they going to basically wake up one day and realize they just flushed a lot of money down the toilet? I mean, I think they're already waking up to this. Uh, we're, we're starting to get pretty good research because uh, there's innovations coming out of, let's say, the social physics lab at uh, the MIT Media Center, uh, MIT Media Lab, where they can actually now put devices on people. 
so they could have uh, data, hard data, let's say on face-to-face interactions, like who talked to who, when did they talk to them, how long did they talk to them? Uh, and they did, for example, this this big study that was reported in the Royal Proceedings uh, last year, earlier this, this year. Uh, and what they found was they took a company that was going to move to an open office, but hadn't yet. So they could measure everything uh, in their old office, and then the same people doing the same work, you know, two months later, they could come back and measure the same things, but in a new open office. So you could really control the experiment. And what they found was that uh, the opposite of what the open office proponents claim actually occurred. When they moved to an open office, people cut down on their face-to-face interaction. Uh, they increased their online email and instant messenger-based interaction. And the productivity metrics that they had decided to look to use in advance to try to measure how effective is the office running decreased. So it essentially was a failure on all the things that people thought it was supposed to be successful on and fostering more communication, more collaboration, more interesting ideas, more productivity. And it did the opposite. And so I'm increasingly convinced that what's really happening with the open office movement is that it's less about productivity and more about signaling. It's a way of signaling to potential employees and investors, hey, look, we're doing something disruptive. We would be the type of innovative new place that you would like to work or that you would like to invest in, something that has the chance of really making a difference. And when you see open offices as signaling, uh, then the case becomes a little murkier because especially if you're in tech, getting the very best employees and getting investment is really, really important to succeeding. And so if spending all this money to build these sort of productivity monstrosities helps you attract people and helps you get investment, okay, maybe there's actually some rationality behind it. But the one thing that very few people believe anymore is that somehow this new configuration is going to help your your organization run better or produce more value because it really doesn't seem to be doing that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, wow. Wow. Um, well, we could beat this like a dead horse all day long. So let's let's actually get into, uh, you know, sort of the ideas in digital minimalism and, and, you know, talk about how this applies to our personal lives. I think that there are two things that struck me in the book. You know, you said that our brains are highly susceptible to these forces. This matters because many of the apps and sites that keep people compulsively checking their smartphones and opening browser tabs often leverage these hooks to make themselves nearly impossible to resist. And you also say that we didn't sign up for the digital lives we now lead. They were instead, to a large extent, crafted in boardrooms to serve the interests of a select group of technology investors. So expand on that for me. Well, so when you, when you talk to people about what's the problem here, what's the problem that has really become acute in, let's say, the last couple of years versus how things were maybe five years ago? Uh, what you learn is that people's issue, first of all, is not usefulness, right? So the argument is not, is this particular technology useful or useless? Because for the most part, if you're using something, there's some reason. I mean, you're not just doing it randomly. People don't think about, let's say, Instagram like they would think about cigarette smoking. You know, a habit that they just 100% wish they weren't doing. You know, um, it's more it's more subtle than that. There's usually uses to all these things. But but people's complaints is not, I really hate the time I spend using these things. Uh, it's about autonomy, which is how much time I spend using these things. And this is the shift that I was really noticing that people are saying, okay, sure, there's some useful thing with these technologies, but I'm using them, if I'm honest, well more than what's just useful, well beyond the threshold of usefulness, well beyond what's healthy for me. I'm starting to use them to the exclusion of things that are much more important. I'm starting to feel like I'm uh, manipulated as well, that, that what I believe or how I feel is increasingly sort of out of my control. And so this idea that autonomy, not usefulness was very important for me understanding the issue. People want to take back control of their lives. It's not that they have a specific problem with the specific thing they do when they happen to be looking at their screen. Um, so that, that's the first point I'd make. The, the second point is, you know, underscoring this issue that I'm losing autonomy uh, is the notion that a lot of these services really morphed over time after people signed up for them. So I know a lot of people who signed up for, let's say, Facebook back when it was on the browser, back when you were in college. Um, and it was a, a relatively static thing. You would occasionally maybe change your status or post something, and you would occasionally check in, uh, maybe to see what your friends were up to. But you know, mainly people liked it because they wanted to know the relationship status of you know people they knew at school. But it was something that you you kind of checked occasionally, and that's what they signed up for. And then at some point, when uh, Facebook, for example, was making the move to the mobile market, which was right around the time that their investors were saying, "Hey." 
we want a 100x return on our investment. We need IPO. You got to get your revenues number up. They drastically shifted what the experience was. And they shifted things over to mobile. And they begin to invest a lot of money into exploiting psychological hooks so that people would compulsively use it so they could get their revenue numbers higher. Uh, this was very successful. Facebook's valuation quickly succeeded that of ExxonMobil. But the, the impact of this is that you have a whole generation of users who looked up a couple of years ago and said, I signed up at Facebook because I was kind of interested in you know the relationship status of this guy down the hall. And now I'm checking this thing 50 minutes a day, like the average US Facebook user. Uh, when did that happen? That's not what I signed up for. And this, this, is, this type of shift is, is common to a lot of different technologies. So, so really what's going on here is it's an issue of autonomy, not usefulness. Things that seem casual, things that seem like the quote Bill Barr sort of gifts being handed down by the nerd gods that were kind of fun or cool or innovative that maybe you signed up for or bought on a lark. We're looking up now and saying, I'm spending almost all of my discretionary time at the very least glancing at these things. When did I sign up for that? When did I decide this is how I wanted to live my life? And I, I think it's this is the realization a lot of people are having. So I wonder, I mean, I know that you had uh, written a post. I remember when I asked you about it in the course I taught for Creative Live about the fact that Facebook would probably be the most dispensable of the sort of billion dollar unicorns, because if it was it went away, our lives wouldn't be particularly inconvenient. But Apple, Amazon and Google going away would be much more disruptive. Uh, do you think that the uh, very existence of these companies is under threat, given that people are finally waking up and the fact that their survival depends on the way we spend our attention? Well, that's part of what makes them dangerous, right? I mean, if, if you're Facebook, for example, uh, you're very similar to uh, an oil company, an oil and gas company like ExxonMobil, except for what you extract to make profit is time and attention from users, right? And, and if you're a large public company that, that has quarterly earnings reports, right, you want to you want to extract as much as possible. Like there's really no, no notion of moderation. I mean, ExxonMobil is, is never going to say, you know, we could extract more oil and natural gas this quarter, but it, it seems like it might be a little much. We have enough. I think it's fine. You know, we're we're, we're gonna we're not going to you know follow these options we have to sort of make better better drilling sites or more fracking or what have you. No, they're going to extract what they can. And and Facebook, for example, is is essentially just the Exxon Mobil of time and attention. And, and they have a, a fiduciary duty to their stockholders to to make as much money as they can. And so in that instance, I think it is a threat because, you know, we are the product. I mean, I often think about what they did with their mobile app using really smart ideas and heavy investment to make them uh, almost uh, irresistible so that they could extract massively more time and attention. It's just like when the oil and gas industry figured out about fracking. And through high technology, they could extract a lot more valuable resources out of the ground than they're used to before. And so we could either see, you know, social media companies like Facebook as, again, these gifts handed down by the nerd gods, or we could see it as basically cognitive fracking. Like a company cracked a new technology that allowed them to get much more time and attention than anyone else ever has before. And when I see it that way, it's hard not to see what they're up to as something that is threatening, especially because I don't think it's at all fundamental. Facebook wants us to think that somehow they invented the internet. And if they weren't there, that there would be no uh, connection to people. There would be no expression. There'd be no way to discover new ideas. But those of us who have, who have been around long enough to be you know, uh, boosters of the original consumer-facing internet know that there's a, a vibrant social internet. It was here before Facebook. It'll be here after Facebook goes. The idea that we need the internet to be captured within the walled gardens of a, a, a small number of companies, well, we already saw that before when AOL tried to do that in the 90s. Uh, we don't need it. And so they're not at all indispensable. 
all the things they claim to be enabling, we could do, I think, even better without them. And because they have this sort of motive that we have to extract as much time and attention as possible out of the, the sort of world population, I do see them a bit as a threat. Yeah. Well, I think that what's interesting is that you and I lived uh, in, we you know, we both were in school in a pre-Facebook world. Like I have an understanding of what it's like to grow up without Facebook. And it's, uh, you know, I think I'd sent you that piece that I wrote about the time we have left with the people who matter most to us, that that ad campaign that went crazy viral in Spain, which was really telling. So before we get into uh, solutions and talking about incorporating digital minimalism into our life, I think what I want to do is paint a picture of the consequences. What are the consequences to the way that we use these technologies today? Well, there's a lot. And so we could, we could kind of divide these consequences into different categories. Yeah. Uh, but let's start with the most serious. Uh, and the most serious is let's actually talk about uh, physical health and well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, and here, there is just some really scary results, right? Especially if you look at uh, young women in Generation Z, so the first generation to actually have access to smartphones and social media starting in their preteen and early teenage years. Uh, so you and I were millennials. We went to college. We did, when we arrived at college, we didn't have these. We didn't have these as teenagers. If you look at the statistics, there's there's nothing all that alarming about, let's say, uh, self-harm or mental health statistics for our generation. There hasn't been much change, uh, that much change recently. But if you look at Generation Z, and in particular, uh, look at young women in Generation Z, what you see is a massive spike. It's one of the scariest graphs I've seen when you look uh, first at, let's say, anxiety and anxiety-related disorders, and second, when you look at actual sort of hospitalizations uh, for self-harm, which is which is really the, the ground truth uh, if there's a mental health crisis going on, because sure, there could be differences in reporting as cultural norms change, but the thing that's the ground truth is how many people are being hospitalized, let's say, for, for uh, extreme depression, suicide attempts, or self-harm. And that just skyrocketed. And, and, and there's really no other way, no other explanation that fits the timing than social media and smartphones. So if we want to start with the, the biggest consequences, if you put these things in the hands of young people whose brains are still developing, who are still going through uh, you know, these hard middle school and high school periods, it's causing, this. we're talking physical harm, uh, unprecedented levels of increase in these types of uh, self-harm and mental illness. And this is a really big deal. Um, and so we know that's going on. Now, if we if we move, let's say, to you and I or someone who's maybe a little bit older who got out of our vulnerable teenage years without actually being exposed to this, uh, there are still some some I think serious harms. The first being mainly that it's it's exploiting time and attention. And so, if you take your time and attention away from things that are more meaningful, like these tools do, uh, it significantly decreases the quality of your life. And I think there's a lot of people, let's say our age or, or uh, around our age, that just have this vague background hub of anxiety. They're, they're, there's always sort of a chasm of existential despair that's not far away, but they're just keeping it at bay by constantly looking at the growing rectangle. And there's just no way to live. Uh, and, and I think this is really a problem. Uh, and people try to fill this void uh, by being online even more and more. And this leads to weird, more extreme behavior. And I don't think that's good. Uh, and then the final harm I want to mention is that uh, when you move your sort of content consumption into the walled garden worlds of these social media conglomerates, where essentially you're just consuming information from a stream that's being driven by an algorithm whose whole point is just to, to maximize engagement, it does really bad things to, let's say, your view of the world, uh, how you think about other people. It pushes people into weird extremes. It makes people unhappy. It makes people angry. It's just not a healthy way to actually engage with the world. 
Uh, so if we're going to break it down to three buckets, those would be the three buckets. For, for certain age groups, it's causing just uh, really distressing actual physical and mental harm. For yeah. other age groups, it's significantly decreasing the quality of their life. And this way of consuming information through walled garden social media conglomerates is really warping people's view and making their sort of experience of the world, the very manipulative sense, much more extreme uh, and unhappy and angry. Yeah. Well, I mean, you saw the video I sent you, you saw the article and, you know, I followed that up with another piece about the opportunity cost. And I said effectively that um, we're sacrificing the time that we have left with the people who matter most to us to become spectators in the lives of people we've never even met. Yeah. The opportunity cost is so fundamental to any minimalism movement. And for example, in the book, I talked about uh, rediscovering in Walden, this sort of really smart very modern sounding sort of quanta, quantitative argument in terms of opportunity cost that Thoreau made. And he had this great example, which I love, which is he said, you know, consider the farmer who is really excited because he, he's, he's bought a carriage to get to town. And now that he has this carriage, it's horse drawn, he can get to town in 20 minutes instead of an hour. And so it seems like, look at this great advantage. This thing is faster. I'm, I'm so excited about it. But what the farmer doesn't realize is that he has to work an extra, you know, two hours per week to afford the carriage. And so actually he's in the hole. <laughs> he's he's actually decreased his time that he has free to do things that matter significantly. He thinks he's improved it, but he's actually made it much worse. Um, and it's this sort of beautiful parable of opportunity cost that you, you see the small value in front of you, but you miss the larger values that you're missing. What is it? What did it take? Right. So, hey, I get this advantage for being on Facebook. But what that 50 to 90 minutes a day? where it's, it's, it's uh, taking up your time or when you're doing something else fragmenting your attention. So you're kind of there with your kids, but you're kind of not. What's the cost of that? I mean, what could you do with 50 minutes a day, seven days a week? I mean, how does that add up? I mean, just think about like not just productivity, but just high quality soul affirming behavior you could be doing. And so yeah, the opportunity cost argument, though it's kind of common, it's really worth reemphasizing uh, because it's, it's really important. Yeah. Well, Let's get into the tactical pieces. How do people actually do this? Um, you know, I wonder, because I've, you know, as a part of preparing for my conversation with you, I thought, what better way to, you know, prep for this than to actually, you know, a- attempt to put this into my life. And I've been off for probably, I think, since the beginning of the year. And I've noticed that I'm, blo- I'm publishing something every day. Um, I'm making progress on projects. Uh, and I've noticed, I'm like, wow, I'm not really missing all that much. Uh, so how do we get there tactically? Uh and what are the other qual- changes? I know that you wrote about a bunch of other changes that people saw in the quality of their lives by doing this. Right. Well, first, I want to note, uh, you know, notice you said you're not missing all that much. I think this is what's important, right? So, yeah, there probably are some things that you are missing. But the question is, are those things worth trading for publishing every day and, and making significant progress on projects that really matter? And, and when you see it with the right trade-off, you say, oh, that's a fair trade-off. Right, missing out on X, Y, Z in order to make much more progress on ABC uh, is a, is a perfectly valid argument. So the the big idea I had, sort of the big idea behind this book, is that if you want to take back control of your digital life, get away from those harms we were talking about, uh, tips and good intentions are not enough. Like this is what we've been trying. Uh, we all read the same articles about turning off our notifications or doing a digital Shabbat, you know, one day a week, don't use your devices. This isn't working, right? The technological and cultural forces that are drawing us to the screens are, are much too powerful for that, that type of ad hoc approach to work. And good intentions aren't working. I mean, I don't know how many people resolved last week. Uh, I want to look at my screen less. I want to look at my phone less. Uh, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, give it three weeks and they're going to be looking at it again. The, the, the forces are too strong. 
So what I think we need to do instead is actually have a philosophy of technology use. So a philosophy that is based on your values, something that you could believe in, and something that gives you a, a consistent way of deciding, should I do this or should I not? Should I use this or should I not? Uh, so digital minimalism is a philosophy of technology use, but, but just to step back briefly into why we need philosophies in the first place, I think the area that we're more familiar with where we've seen this work is health and fitness. So in the 20th century, we had this rise of highly processed, unhealthy foods and the rise of fast food. And we had a lot of sickness. People got obese. We had diabetes, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, all of this, all of this skyrocketed. I mean, we all know that we, we started getting very unhealthy. And what we've noticed is that tips didn't work. So just telling someone like, hey, you need to eat healthier and move more was not enough. They didn't get healthier. You know, having the Department of Agriculture publish a food pyramid turns out that it solved the obesity epidemic, right? <laughs> just giving people some tips like eat more of this and less of that, not enough to do it. But if you think about whoever is, let's say, the healthiest person you know, almost certainly they have some sort of very clear philosophy around health and fitness that they've completely bought into, right? They're vegan uh, or they're paleo or whatever it is, but there's, there's some clear philosophy. It's built into values they care about and, and they're, they're all in. And these are the people who are able to overcome the strong forces of processed food and fast food and all these other types of uh, unhealthy cultural forces and, and, and build really healthy lifestyles. And so basically, I think we need that in our digital lives. You know, the problem is big enough that we need whatever the equivalent is of veganism or paleo is, but for our digital lives. Uh, and that's what digital minimalism is. And so the basic idea behind this philosophy, and this is a standard minimalism philosophy, we're just applying it to your digital life. The basic idea is that you wipe the slate clean of the sort of clutter, all of these different apps and services and gadgets that you sort of just randomly signed up for on a web over the last 10 years that are, that are now cluttered up your digital life. You wipe the slate clean and you only add back in online behaviors that significantly support something that you really value. So this is an additive approach. You're not trying to take things out one by one. You start from scratch and add back in only things that you very specifically and intentionally chosen because it supports something that you really value. And then, and this is the key part, be okay missing out on everything else. Even if some of those things have some value they could bring you, even if there are some conveniences that those things bring you, be okay missing out that you are building from scratch a digital life that has a, a very intentionally selected group of behaviors and tools that give you huge ROI, and then you're content with that and let the rest of that whole noisy, tangled mass just do its own thing without being involved with you. Yeah. I don't remember whether it was you or Seth who wrote the blog post titled The, the Mona Lisa Doesn't Tweet. If I remember correctly, it was you. Uh, somebody, it was, it was either one of you guys, and it was about the fact that even though these people don't have any presence on social media, people are talking about them in social media. So I took a peek at Twitter over the last few days uh, just to see it, and I was like, oh, wow, people are talking about my book, and I haven't tweeted a damn thing for weeks. Uh, Shri, could you repeat that question one more time? I lost yeah, you. Yeah, no, no, I was asking, um, was it you or Seth who wrote the blog post that was titled The Mona Lisa Doesn't Tweet? Right. So that blog post, Seth Godin wrote it, and then I wrote about Seth's blog post. Yeah. <laughs> and then Seth commented on my blog post about his blog post, and the whole internet circularity continued. Uh, but I really like that post that Seth had, because I think it succinctly captured you know, an, an idea that I've been writing about since So Good They Can't Ignore You back in 2012, which is essentially what matters when it comes to doing important things or finding success is do things that are really valuable. 
right? As Steve Martin said, be so good they can't ignore you. If you do that, other good things will follow. And there's really not much about engaging on social media that's building up a skill or producing things that are valuable. And so, you know, the more you're spending time doing that, the less time you're actually creating the valuable things that are that are too good to be ignored. And so I like the way that Seth talked about it, is that some of the most famous things, the, same, the things we love and respect to both, didn't get there because of their self-promotion. They got there because they were excellent. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Like I took a quick peek at TweetDeck like a, a few weeks, a couple of days ago, and I was like, oh, wow, people are talking about my book, even though I haven't tweeted a damn thing for weeks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't have social media and I'm, I'm sure lots of people talk about my stuff on social media, <laughs> yeah. which is fine. I mean, okay. I mean, yeah, if people are very social on social media, that helps spread things. They, okay, create things that'll spread. I mean, whether or not you're actually in there pushing it probably doesn't matter much. In fact, maybe it actually detracts, right? It's counter signaling. Let, let other people speak on your behalf, produce something that they can't help talk about no matter what communication medium they use. Um, you know, if I was actually on Twitter telling people, hey, I want you to talk about my book or here's my book, I don't know if that's going to help much. I mean, either they like the book and they want to talk about it or they don't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's one other piece that I want to ask you because I know you got to get going here. I remember you wrote about Bryce Harper, the baseball player, and you highlighted this difference between a 10 and $325 million contract. And I remember reading that thinking, wow, if the cost of your use of social media was $315 million, would you use it? Right, which is why I'm I'm so surprised that I mean this is starting to change. A lot of people wrote me after that article, but uh, social media use in professional athletics always surprises me because it's such a, a winner take all uh, endeavor. Right, the difference between number one and being number twenty at something is it could be hundred million dollars or more, like in Bryce Harper's case. Uh, and I think we're starting to actually see in professional sports uh, a move away from because they're so obsessed with all other parts of performance, especially the elite players. Uh, LeBron James, what was this article I saw? He spent something like a million dollars in the offseason of his own money every year just on nutrition and training because he gets such a huge return for being the very best player versus a pretty good player that that's worth it for him. And there's a real cognitive toll uh, to social media. So there's this great study that someone pointed me towards, and I think it came out recently, where what they did is they took, I think it was basketball players, and it was very smart. They they looked at, okay, how late were they tweeting? And then they could look at the games they played the next day and said, okay, what's the connection? And they found this clear connection that the, the more you're up tweeting as an athlete, the worse the next day you performed in your sport because it was causing whatever sleep disruption and, and uh, sleep deprivation. Um, so I, I get the sense of that's changing, but there's, all, of course, the, the, the broader point here, which is when you're talking about huge impact versus kind of impact versus no impact, like these type of scales. If you want to get towards like these very upper ends of the scales of meaningful creative impact, these little details matter. And the more time you're spending sort of talking about yourself and your work and not actually trying to make the work better, uh, it's nonlinear. As you move up the scale of impact, that the, the value that you're leaving on the table gets larger and larger. And it's something that we shouldn't ignore. Mm, wow. Wow. Um, you know, it's funny because I could talk to you all day about this. I feel like there's so much more we could discuss uh, when it comes to this, and I know that you have to get going. What I mean, what is your prescription for people who want to start? Uh, because I know that you know, like you said, the life hacks and the the sound bites and all that shit doesn't typically work. Is it just wipe the slate clean? Yeah. Well, so I, I have a specific uh, prescription that I call the digital declutter. Uh, which is which is a 30-day method if you want to make a rapid transition 
individualism, which is what seems to work. It's a, a sort of pull the band-aid off type approach tends to work better with this because it's an additive thing. So since you have to start from scratch at some point, at some point you have to get down to scratch. Uh, and so in the book, I talk about this digital declutter method, uh, which is it's interesting because what happened was about a year ago when I was working on this, I put out a call to my readers and I said, okay, are there any volunteers, any brave volunteers who are willing to go through this 30-day digital declutter process with me because I, I want to learn from your experiences and, and help tweak it uh, before I put this in my book. And it's a big ask because it requires you to, to take all the stuff out of your digital life and then carefully add it back. So I thought I would get you know 20 or 30 people, brave souls, willing to do this experiment with me. And I ended up with over 1,600 people signing up saying, yeah, let's do this, right? And they were ready. I mean, to the point where the New York Times even wrote a whole article about this declutter, uh, about what's going on. Why are so many people, you know, walking away from all these technologies for the month of January? Uh, and it worked really well. I learned a lot from that. And, and so here's, here's the sort of uh, version of this declutter that I preach in the book is uh, you take a 30-day break from any optional technology in your personal life. So anything you could get away with taking a break from without it causing significant hardship to, let's say, you know, your family or, or your work or something like this. During that 30 days, uh, in addition to just detoxing, so getting used to not using these devices, this is a period for self-reflection and self-discovery. So on the self-reflection piece, really get back in touch with what you value, what you're trying to do with your life. What are the things you think are the, the most important uh, types of activities in which to invest effort? Uh, and two, start to rediscover the type of high-quality analog leisure with which we used to spill, uh, spend our free time when we didn't have constant access to distraction. Then when the 30 days are over, you go through this reintroduction process where uh, you only add something back in if you could make a really strong case that it really uh, significantly supports one of those values you figured out during the declutter. And even then, you don't just let it back in with a blank check. You let it back in with rules for how and when you're going to use it. Uh, so if you're an artist that wants to get inspiration from Instagram, which a lot of artists reported to me that they do, you don't just say, yeah, I just use Instagram now. You say, okay, it's not on my phone. It's only on my desktop. I've curated who I follow down to the dozen most inspirational artists for my particular type of work. And I go on here on uh, Monday and Fridays for 20 minutes on my desktop, right? So it's not just they let things back in that are very important. They specify how. And you come out of this on the other side, a minimalist. Like you have a completely overhauled digital life uh, that really supports your values. You, you're using technology much better than you were before. You're, the things you value are getting much more time and attention. So you're going to be much more happy and satisfied with life. And I can tell you, having watched 1,600 people go through this, that it's hard. Uh, but the rewards are really, really big. Yeah. Amazing, uh, as always. So I have uh, one last question before I let you go here, which is how we finish all of our interviews. And I know I've asked you this question before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? If you're so good, you can't be ignored, right? I mean, I, I, I go back to that, that quote from Steve Martin, but I think it applies to a lot more than just say, let's say narrow professional endeavors. Uh, when you do something that be it the way you behave, what you create, what you have helped support, uh, the way that you interact with your community, whatever it is, when you're doing something that causes people without you having to promote yourself, uh, pay attention, right? 
and say, well, that's too good for me to ignore. Uh, and and you, you find that good things that are starting to just attract you, options and opportunities and interesting connections and just good things start to attract, attract you in life. Uh, that's when you're doing something unmistakable. So I think Steve Martin really nailed it. <laughs> he said sort of my central advice is be so good they can't ignore you. Uh, having written a book about that, it's, it's been a long time now. I still really believe that uh, that is really the foundation of of a life well lived, regardless about what specifically you're aiming that life towards. Yeah, amazing. Well, um, where can people find out more about you? Uh, everything up here on the new book. Uh, well, you won't find me on social media because I, I'm a digital minimalist. Um, but but uh, you can find a book anywhere books are sold. Also, I'm a big fan of blogging, and I've been blogging at calnewport.com for over a decade. So if you want to just toy around with some of these ideas and, and some of the new things I've been thinking about and email and, uh, and social media, and technology in general, that's a great place to get lost in an archive. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.